Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 41, with our book today, which you'll be able to see on the video, The Annotated Persuasion by Jane Austen, annotated and edited by David M. Shepard. I quote from the annotated Jane Austen on the literary life of Jane Austen. Uh, who would have loved, would have loved Facebook? Read directly from the introduction. Persuasion stands out in several ways from other Jane Austen novels. It is by far the shortest, the only one to comprise two volumes rather than three, with the exception of Northanger Abbey, which was completed many years before the final version, uh, final versions of any of the others and bears the mark of a much less mature author. Persuasion's brevity is linked to other features that distinguish it from the other novels. While it contains a comparable number of characters, most of these characters are developed in much less detail. It contains fewer passages of dialogue, relying far more on authoritarian authorial description to summarize what the other three novels show through the character's speech and action. This has furnished another argument for the influence of the author's declining health on its composition. One may suspect, however, that Jane Austen might well have revised the novel had she lived and expanded many of these resumes into the dialogues she so obviously enjoyed. Finally, this novel stands out for being the least humorous of all the novels, the only one without two or three supporting characters who provide substantial comic relief. All this might lead logically to Persuasions being by far the least popular of Jane Austen's novels for comedy, a rich array of supporting characters and brilliant dialogue are central to her appeal. But this has not been the fate of Persuasion. Sales figures show it roughly tied with Sense and Sensibility and Emma for second place in popularity behind Pride and Prejudice and ahead of both Mansfield Park and Northanger Abbey. Indeed, many readers have declared a particular fondness for it. An important reason for this fondness lies in Persuasion's most distinctive feature, its plot. Like all Jane Austen novels, it is primarily a romance in which the principal characters form a happy marital union at the end. But in Persuasion, this union occurs against the backdrop of an unhappy rupture in the past, one that has led to years of misery for both characters, especially the heroine, the person around whom the novel revolves. This gives the novel a bittersweet flavor and is one reason for its less comical spirit. It also gives the novel's resolution a unique poignancy. Rather than having to overcome misunderstandings or difficulties that last merely for months and that still allow them frequently to enjoy each other's company and friendship, these lovers have overcome years of total estrangement, an estrangement both have long assumed to be final. Added to this is the heroine's attainment of an age that, in this society, usually consigned a woman to permanent spinsterhood and the dependence and low status that accompanied it. Such misery makes the final joy of reconciliation stand out all the more sharply. The letter from Captain Wentworth bringing about this joy is probably the single most moving event in Jane Austen. His, quote, you pierce my soul, I am half agony, half hope, unquote, and I have loved none but you, close quote, represent far more intense language than that used by any Austen hero, the words of a man who has suffered for years from the thwarting and the attempted self-suppression of his love. 
And these words have had an impact on the heroine and the reader that probably exceeds that in any other Austen novel, the product of the heroine's long period of even greater suffering and the reader's immersion in her pain for most of the novel. There are other advantages to the novel that flow from its protagonist's lengthy separation. One is a far more mature heroine, Anne is 27. The next oldest Austen heroine is Emma Woodhouse, who is 21. Moreover, partly because of her bitter experiences and her years spent struggling against unhappiness, Anne has attained a degree of wisdom and self-control rare even for her age. This makes a significant difference in the presentation of the story. Jane Austen always tells her tales from the perspective of her heroine with only occasional interruptions. Yet even as she does this, there is generally an important divergence between the author's consciousness and that of the heroine due to the flaws or follies or misunderstandings of the latter. This means that the narration must switch between expressing the point of view of the heroine with all its limitations and possible errors and expressing the all-knowing perspective of the author. The gap between these two can be a fruitful source of ironic commentary, but it can also create abrupt transitions as well as possible uncertainty or confusion regarding which perspective is being conveyed in particular passages. In persuasion, however, there is little gap between heroine and author. During the first three chapters and on occasional passages thereafter, the author alone speaks in order to provide essential background information. Otherwise, she speaks almost completely through Anne, who is so reflective that she is constantly analyzing the characters and actions around her, and so perceptive that her analysis are almost invariably correct. This means that these passages can furnish the reader with essential information, both about what is happening generally and about the state of Anne's mind. Born 1775, died 1817, and the Bronte sisters, uh, born 1816 to, and, and the last one died in 1849. These female authors, the four of them, cast a long, sharp, and indelible shadow over other female writers of the Enlightenment era. Jane Austen, though, who we are talking about today, who wrote Persuasion, uh, Sense and Sensibility, Northanger Abbey, Mansfield Park, and all these other great books. Uh, Jane Austen transcended her own time. Um, she will be read 100 years from now, and she will be read probably 200 years from now, and she will probably be read 500 years from now if we all have the ability as humanity to get to the clearing at the end of that particular path. And she will survive no matter what else happens, translated into Hindu and Chinese, translated into various African dialects, and even Russian. Jane Austen transcended her own time because that's what talent does. Talent is more than just being able to write. Talent is being able to put in the work. And Jane Austen, in her short life, put in the work. She observed people. She loved watching and seeing how people reacted and how people engaged the social strata that they engaged in. And of course, pointing out the various hypocrisies and indecisions and uh, gaps that existed between what people said, what people did, 
and trying to surmise what people thought. If she had been born a little bit later, let's say 100 years later, or let's say even 200 years later, maybe in 1975, Jane Austen would have been shaped by her era, but the talent would have remained the same. And I do fundamentally believe that she would have loved social media because that's where the long vomit of people's inner lives is occurring right now in real time. She would have been fascinated by Facebook. Not so much Twitter, maybe, and TikTok probably would have turned her off, but Facebook, the place where you can put up pictures, where you can have arguments, where you can show memes and watch advertising, and you can see everybody do their internal dance out loud and put on a show, that would have fascinated her. There's a lesson here for leaders in that fascination. There's lessons here about talent. There's lessons here about casting a long shadow. But there's also lessons when you look inside of persuasion, and we are going to be looking at the annotated version of that. By the way, the annotated merely just means extra uh, materials added. And this is a lovingly uh, annotated uh, edition edited by David M. Shepard, who uh, we tried to find to actually come on the podcast. And if somebody listens to this and can find him, uh, great. Uh, he is not findable on the internet. Um, and I find that to be kind of cool, actually. Apparently, he's riding around on a tractor somewhere in upstate New York. So if you happen to be listening to this episode of the podcast, either now or many years from now, and you happen to run across David or one of David's uh, progenitors and or descendants, please let them know that we appreciated his annotated edition. Now, the annotation in this further explains the society, the culture, the mores, and the moods and the modes that influenced persuasion, Jane Austen's final novel before her death. Why am I reading that? On, why am I reading this novel, though, on a podcast about leadership? I mean, we read things like uh, Dostoevsky, that one fairly clear. We've read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, upcoming, we'll be reading F.A. Hayek, right? And, and even uh, a little bit of, uh, well, a little bit of uh, Charles Dickens, right? As we approach the holiday, or not approach, as we are in the holiday season. We've had the Thanksgiving proclamation from. Uh, George Washington, and we've even covered the Civil War. Why would we talk about Jane Austen, though? Well, a couple of reasons. But the biggest one, and this is the biggest reason, the biggest reason is that leaders ignore romantic literature. I know I did. Uh, we don't really take too much from it. Just like we ignore romantic movies, we think that there's so much fluff, and particularly leaders who are maybe more oriented towards masculine traits, both male and female, uh, or maybe who are oriented more towards masculine energy. Um, you know, we ignore romantic literature. We think it's so much fluff and so much nonsense and so much so much predictability, right? You know, the guy meets the girl or the girl meets the guy. Uh, they have an initial attraction. Uh, they, uh, they fall in love or maybe they start to fumble around and try to figure out if they are in love. Um, they can't figure it out. There's a break or a separation or a misunderstanding and then they fall apart and then they come back together and it is a glorious coming back together and the movie closes or the novel closes and then everybody goes back home. I basically describe the plot of every romantic comedy you've ever seen. 
uh, every romantic drama you've ever seen, and every piece of romantic literature you've ever read or heard about. So what can leaders get from Jane Austen? What can they get from a woman who is working at the top of her game in persuasion? Well, I fundamentally believe that there is no better way to learn about the actual humanity of emotional intelligence, not the psychology of it, the actual humanity of it and all of its practicalities and all of its pitfalls and of all of its promises. And I particularly believe that we need that as modern receivers of the enlightenment promise that Jane Austen and even the Bronte sisters and many other female writers of that era were working out of. They were exploring eras not covered by governments or societies, not covered in the broad sweep of historical reference. These were not the Churchills. These were not the Dostoevskys. These were not the Tolstoys of the world. And don't get me wrong. Yeah, I understand. Tolstoy did Anna Karenina, which I personally like better than War and Peace. And Dostoevsky did Crime and Punishment and Notes from the Underground. But they weren't exploring human nature from a feminine energy perspective. And that feminine energy and the preservation of that energy and the understanding of why that energy matters as a counterpoint to all of the male energy floating around in the world and why that energy is separate and not the same matters quite a bit for leaders to understand, both male and female, particularly in our times when there is so much emotional, psychological, and spiritual confusion. to the book, back to the annotated persuasion, of course, by Jane Austen, annotated and edited by David M. Shapard, S-H-A-P-A-R-D. Um, this edition um, was, uh, was released by Random House uh, via Anchor Books. You can go and pick it up. Um, it's a great little book to have. Um, he also uh, wrote the annotated Pride and Prejudice. You may want to pick that up as well. Uh, he graduated with a PhD, the, um, the annotator and editor did, David M. Shepard, in European history from the University of California, Berkeley. And his specialty was the 18th century. Uh, since then, he has taught at several colleges and he lives in upstate New York. Remember, I mentioned that crack about, I mean, I made that crack about the tractor. So if you can find him, please let him know that we appreciate his efforts. Back to the book, back to persuasion. We're going to start off here with a little bit of a long piece as we make some observations here about the impact of small tyrannies. And I quote, Vanity was the beginning and end of Sir Walter Elliot's character, vanity of person and of situation. He had been remarkably handsome in his youth and at 54 was still a very fine man. Few women could think more of their personal appearance than he did, <clears throat> nor could the valet of any new made lord be more delighted with the place he held in society. He considered the blessings of beauty as inferior only to the blessing 
of a baronetcy. And the Sir Walter Elliot who united these gifts was the constant object of his warmest respect and devotion. His good looks and his rank had one fair claim on his attachment, since to them he must have owed a wife of very superior character to anything deserved by his own. Lady Elliot had been an excellent woman, sensible and amiable, whose judgment and conduct, if they might be pardoned, the youthful infatuation that made her a Lady Elliot, had never required indulgence afterwards. She had humored or softened or concealed his failings and promoted his real respectability for 17 years. And though not the very happiest being in the world herself, had found enough in her duties, her friends, and her children to attach her to life and to make it no matter of indifference to her when she was called on them to quit them. Or called on to quit them, sorry. Three girls, the two eldest, 16 and 14, was an awful legacy for a mother to bequeath, an awful charge rather to confide to the authority and guidance of a conceited, silly father. She had, however, one very intimate friend, a sensible, deserving woman who had been brought by strong attachment to herself to settle close by her in the village of Kellynch. And on her kindness and advice, Lady Elliot mainly relied for the best help and maintenance of the good principles and instruction which she had been anxiously giving her daughters. This friend and Sir Walter did not marry, whatever might have been anticipated on that head by their acquaintance. Thirteen years had passed since Lady Elliot's death, and they were still near neighbors and intimate friends, and one remained a widower, and the other a widow. That Lady Russell, of steady age and character and extremely well provided for, should have no thought of a second marriage, needs no apology to the public, which is rather apt to be unreasonably discontented when a woman does marry again than when she does not, but Sir Walter's continuing in singleness requires explanation. Be it known, then, that Sir Walter, like a good father, having met with one or two private disappointments in, a very unreasonable, in very unreasonable applications, prided himself on remaining single for his dear daughter's sake. For one daughter, his eldest, he would have really given up anything, which he had not been very much tempted to do. Elizabeth had succeeded at 16 to all that was possible of her mother's rights in consequence, and being very handsome and very like himself, her influence had always been great, and they had gone on together most happily. His other his two other children were of very inferior value. Mary had acquired a little artificial importance by becoming Mrs. Charles Musgrove, but Anne, with an elegance of mind and sweetness of character, which must have placed her high with any people of real understanding, was nobody with either father or sister. Her word had no weight. Her convenience was always to give way. She was only Anne. To Lady Russell, indeed, she was a most dear and highly valued goddaughter, favorite, and friend. Lady Russell loved them all, but it was only in Anne that she could fancy the mother to revive again. A few years before, Anne Elliot had been a very pretty girl, but in her bloom, but her bloom had vanished early. And even at its height, her father had found little to admire in her. So totally different were her delicate features and mild dark eyes from his own. There could be nothing in them now that she was faded and thin to excite his esteem. He had never indulged much hope. He had now none of ever reading her name in any other page of his favorite work. All equality of alliance must rest with Elizabeth, for Mary had merely connected herself with an old country family, family of respectability and large fortune, and had therefore given all the honor and received none. Elizabeth would, one day or other, marry suitably. It sometimes happens that a woman is handsomer at 29 than she was 10 years before, and generally speaking, if there has been neither ill health nor anxiety, it is a time of life at which scarcely any charm is lost. It was so with Elizabeth, still the same handsome as Elliot that she began 
uh, to be 13 years ago, and Sir Walter might be excused, therefore, in forgetting her age, or at least be deemed only half a fool for thinking himself and Elizabeth as blooming as ever amidst the wreck of the good looks of everybody else. For you could plainly see how old all the rest of his family and acquaintance were growing. Anne Haggard, Mary Corse, every face in the neighborhood worsting, and the rapidly in the rapid increase of the crow's foot about Lady Russell's temples had long been a distress to him. Elizabeth did not quite equal her father in personal contentment. Thirteen years had seen her mistress of Kelly Lynch Hall presiding and directing with a self-possession and decision which could never have given the idea of her being younger than she was. For 13 years, she had been doing the honors and laying down the domestic law at home <clears throat> and leading the way to Chase and Four and walking immediately after Lady Russell out of all the drawing rooms and dining rooms in the country. Thirteen winters revolving frost had seen her opening every ball of credit which a scanty neighborhood afforded and 13 springs shone their blossoms as she traveled up to London with her father for a week's annual enjoyment of the great world. She had the remembrance of all this. She had the consciousness of being nine and 20 to give her some regrets and some apprehensions. She was fully satisfied of being still quite as handsome as ever, but she felt her approach to the years of danger and would have rejoiced to be certain of being properly solicited by barren and blood within the next 12 months or two. Then she might again take up the book of books with as much enjoyment as in her early youth, but now she liked it not. Always to be presented with the date of her own birth and see no marriage follow but that of a younger sister made the book an evil. And more than once when her father had left it open on the table near her, had she closed it with averted eyes and pushed it away. hierarchy moves up not down right that little passage there probably does a lot to offend us moderns the time in which we live is a time of rampant egalitarianism and what i mean by that is the belief and, and leaders, by the way, share this belief along with all of the rest of the common culture that the distinctions between men and women are merely surface. They are not of any significance. And that sins such as vanity, the vanity of Sir Walter Elliot, for instance, or the vanity of a society and culture, sins like vanity are meaningless. We don't even mention them anymore. Vanity pride, greed, lust, contemptibility. We don't mention any of these. We also don't talk about the opposite of all of these sins. We don't talk about honor, respect, or respectability. And heck, we've even stopped talking about professionalism. So what does that do? Well, when you flatten culture, when you say that everything is equal all of the time, everywhere, it all is a gray mass of one, then separations and distinctions that used to exist in the world become an anathema to you in the present. They become an anathema to the culture. But there are still separations and human nature and natural law will will out 
and there remains a hierarchy. This is why we have leaders. This is why we have a leadership podcast. This is why we take the position on this podcast that we take that leadership does matter. There will be followers. There will be leaders. Will we co-create? Sure. Will we try to collaborate? Absolutely. Is it better for us to lead than to coerce? Is it better for us to persuade than it is to authoritarily uh, demand? Absolutely. And yet, leaders should not confuse influence across a hierarchy with coercive power down a hierarchy. And Sir Walter Elliott, at least through modern post-enlightenment eyes, looks like a tyrant. He reads in Jane Austen's description there like a tyrant. And Elizabeth and uh, the other two sisters, they read like victims trapped in a tyranny that they cannot get out of and that they are adapting to as best as possible. Now, this is the feminist critique, by the way, of Jane Austen, most notoriously put forth by Virginia Woolf, she of the idea that a woman needs a room of her own. And we're going to read Virginia Woolf starting next year. We're going to kick off in January with Mrs. Dalloway, and we're going to get after it with that idea. But for the time being, let's build out a few assertions. Influence across a hierarchy is what Jane Austen was always seeking after. And quite frankly, if you want to upend a tyranny, small or large, a tyranny that's based in the family, um, well, you've got to understand how influence plays across a hierarchy. You also have to understand and be on the lookout for and manage, as we will see in later selections that we will pick. And as usual, we don't read the whole book because we can't. But you will see as leaders how coercive power can be managed. It can be ameliorated. It can be tapped or tamped, such as it were, down. Terms like suffering or ideas of suffering, ideas of respectability, honor, justice, fairness, and flavor and favoritism, all of these ideas, and this is something also that Austin was getting at that I think is often missed in the readings that we have of her in our post-Nietzschean God is dead moment, in the reading of Jane Austen, right? As we deconstruct her and try to put our current mores on her and her writing and her world of the past, what we find out is that suffering and respectability, honor and justice and fairness and favoritism, all these things play out at home. That's basically what I was saying and reading in that little selection that we read, which was right from the first chapter of the book. These all play themselves out at home before they play out anywhere else. And leaders, leaders have ignored the home for too long, particularly workplace leaders. They've ignored the power of the home. They've ignored the power of parenting. They've ignored the power of how people are being raised in this galloping move to egalitarianism. And quite frankly, if I may be so bold, the state having its tentacles, the tyrant anyway, at the state level, having its tentacles everywhere. You see this in our modern era where you have battles over library books and battles over teachers teaching about 
sexual orientation to five-year-olds and drag queens showing up to read books. Does a five-year-old need to be exposed to that first at school or do they need to be exposed to that at home? Does a five-year-old need to learn about the nature of the negotiation between men and women first in their home from their parents or do they need to learn that from the school? Because by the way, just to point this out in case any of you object or you've turned off the podcast by this point, <laughs> so I might just be talking to dead air, um, people are going to get these lessons anyway. This is the thing we postmoderns or we post postmoderns forget. People are going to learn. They're going to learn from our divorces. They're going to learn from our dysfunctional chaos. They're going to learn from the way we talk to our husbands or talk to our wives or don't. They're going to learn from our vanity. They're going to learn from our petty jealousies. They're going to learn from our gossiping. They're going to learn from our backbiting. And they're all going to learn whether they all sit around at our dinner table or whether they sit around on their mobile phones hooked up to the dopaminergic drip of YouTube they're going to learn. And the younger you put them on the dopaminergic drip, the more they're going to learn from the world and the less they're going to learn from you, but they are going to learn at home. Leaders know that leadership, learning, the how-tos and the whatnots, the nuts and the bolts, all of that starts at home. And this is what Jane Austen was getting towards and if the hierarchy of the home is out of order, as we will see in persuasion, the hierarchy outside of the home will fundamentally collapse into chaos. back to the book, back to the annotated persuasion. So we're going to, we're skipping around, right? So we read from chapter one, um, and now we're going to move forward a little bit in the narrative. And again, I would encourage you to pick it up. It is one of Jane Austen's shortest books, if not her shortest book. Um, not hard to get into at all. Um, there are, of course, film adaptations of persuasion. Um, the last one that was on Netflix apparently has been roundly panned by fans of the book. And there are fans of this book, um, rabid fans. I, I count my, um, one of my sisters is one of these rabid fans of this book. And so, you know, at least one of my listeners will give me feedback on things that I might have missed <laughs> in this episode. But, um, but I encourage you to pick this up. I encourage you to check out some of the film adaptations. Um, and it's been the audiobook version of Persuasion is great, um, particularly if you can find someone with a British accent who can read it in a Shakespearean fashion. Um, it is not Shakespeare, don't get me wrong, um, but it is, you can be read in a Shakespearean fashion and the script does, or not the script, the writing does lend itself to that. So we're going to skip ahead to chapter five and, um, and uh, we're going to talk about um, Anne a little bit, um, Anne. And, uh, and, and Anne is living at a place uh, or staying at a place um, called Upper Cross, right? And we're going to explore Upper Cross a little bit here in this section. 
from the annotated persuasion. Here, Anne had often been staying. She knew the ways of Uppercross as well as those of Kelly Lynch. The two families were so continually meeting, so much in the habit of running in and out of each other's house at all hours, that it was rather a surprise to her to find Mary alone. But being alone, her being unwell and out of spirits was almost a matter of course. Though better endowed than the elder sister, Mary had not Anne's understanding nor temper. One, while well and happy and properly attended to, she had great hu- good humor and excellent spirits, but any indisposition sunk her completely. She had no resources for solitude, and inheriting a considerable share of the Elliot self-importance was very prone to add to every other distress that of fancying herself neglected and ill-used. In person, she was inferior to both sisters and had, even in her bloom, only reached the dignity of being, quote-unquote, a fine girl. She was now lying on the faded sofa of the pretty little drawing room, the once elegant furniture of which had been uh, gradually growing shabby under the influence of four summers and two children, and on Anne's appearing, greeted her with, so you are come at last. I began to think I should never see you. I am so ill, I can hardly speak. I have not seen a creature the whole morning. I'm sorry to find you unwell, replied Anne. You sent me such a good account of yourself on Thursday. Yes, I made the best of it. I always do, but I was very far from well at the time, and I do not think I ever was so ill in my life as I have been all this morning. Very unfit to be left alone, I am sure. Suppose I were to be seized all of a sudden by some dreadful way and not be able to ring the bell. So Lady Russell would not get out. I do not think she has been in this house three times this summer. Anne said what was proper and inquired after her husband. Oh, Charles is out shooting. I have not seen him since seven o'clock. He would go, though I told him how ill I was. He said he should not stay out long, but he has never come back. And now it is almost one, I assure you. I had not seen a soul this whole long morning. You have had your little boys with you? Yes, as long as I could bear the noise, but they are so unmanageable that they do me more harm than good. Little Charles does not mind a word, I say, and Walter is growing quite as bad. Well, he will soon be better now replied Anne cheerfully. You always, you know, I always cure you when I come. How are your neighbors at the great house? I can give you no account of them. I have not seen one of them today, except for Mr. Musgrove, who just stopped and spoke through the window, but without getting off his horse. And though I told him how ill I was, not one of them had been near me. It did not happen to suit the Ms. Musgrove, I suppose, that they never put themselves out of their way. You will see them yet, perhaps, before the morning is gone. It is early. I never want them, I assure you. They talk and laugh a great uh, deal too much for me. Oh, Anne, I am so very unwell. It was quite unkind of you to not come on Thursday. My dear Mary, recollect what a comfortable account you sent me of yourself. You wrote in the cheerfulest manner and said you were perfectly well and in no hurry for me. And that being the case, you must be aware that my wish would be to remain with Lady Russell to the last. And besides, what I felt on her account, I have really been so busy, have had so much to do that I could not very conveniently have left Kellynch sooner. Dear me, what can you possibly have to do? A great many things, I assure you. More than I can recollect in a moment. But I can tell you, son. I've been making a duplicate of the catalog of my father's books and pictures. I have been several times in the garden with Mackenzie, trying to understand and make him understand which of Elizabeth's plants are for Lady Russell. I have had all my own little concerns to arrange, books and music to divide, and all my trunks to repack, and have not understood in time what was intended to the wagons. And one thing I have had to do, Mary, of a more trying nature, going to almost every house in the parish as a sort of take leave. I was told that they wished it, but all these things took up a great deal of time. Oh, well, 
And after a moment's pause, but you have never asked me one word about our dinner at the pools yesterday. Did you go then? I have made no inquiries because I concluded you must have been obliged to give up the party. Oh, yes, I went. I was very well yesterday. Nothing at all the matter with me till this morning. It would have been strange if I had not gone. I'm very glad you were well enough. and I hope you had a pleasant party. Nothing remarkable. One always knows beforehand what the dinner will be and who will be there. And it is so very uncomfortable not having a carriage of one's own. Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove took me and we were so crowded. They are both so very large and take up so much room. And Mr. Musgrove always sits forward. So there I was, crowded in the back seat with Henrietta and Louisa. And I think it very likely that my illness today may be owing to it. A little farther perseverance and patience and forced cheerfulness on Anne's side produced nearly a cure on Mary's. She could soon sit upright on the sofa and began to hope she might be able to leave it by dinner time. Then, forgetting to think of it, she was at the other end of the room, beautifying a nosegay. Then she ate her cold meat, and then she was well enough to propose a little walk. Where shall we go? said she, when they were ready. I suppose you will not like to call at the great house before they have been to see you. I have not the smallest objection on that account, replied Anne. I should never think of standing on such ceremony with people I know so well as Mr. as the Mr. and the Mrs. Musgroves. Home, but they ought to call upon you as soon as possible. They ought to feel what is due to you as my sister. However, we may as well go and sit with them a little while. And when we have got that over, we can enjoy our walk. Anne had always thought such a style of intercourse highly imprudent, but she had ceased to endeavor to check it from believing that, though they were on each side continual subjects of offense, neither family could now do without it. It's the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? So we're cutting this episode um, as the holiday season for some of us, Christmas, for others, many other holidays um, starts or, or begins in the Western world, right? Um, the holiday season for me anyway, always starts with, uh, with Thanksgiving and ends with New Year's. And one day I'll do a whole rip on that in the podcast about how leaders should think about this era this period of time that occurs yearly, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and then New Year's, uh, giving gratitude, celebrating uh, new life coming into the world, and then, of course, renewal. But it's also a time, and I would be bereft or amiss, or remiss, I guess, if I didn't mention this, this is also a time where people are meeting with and dealing with the drama of family. Remember, I said this book is about emotional intelligence, fundamentally, and it's about the practicality of emotional intelligence. And in that passage that I just read, in that interaction between, um, between Anne and Elizabeth, right, um, and how people are being managed, right, socially managed, right, how the sisters are manipulating and moving each other around, right, and they are playing chess with each other, and they're doing it verbally, they're doing it differently than a man would do. Because a man would just go in there and tell his brother to get up off the couch and maybe he would sucker punch him a couple of times and then throw him outside. Women 
well, that isn't available to them. And of course, this book was written in a time when those boundaries between men and women and between what was clearly masculine behavior and clearly feminine behavior were clearly defined and clearly set against society and societal archetypes. But how this all plays out in the family is really interesting. One of the things that really strikes me, and leaders should probably pay attention to this, is that we have weirdly enough, and I already mentioned hierarchies, we weirdly enough in our era, and, and this started probably right around World War II, we've weirdly enough decided to level up the experience of the individual and said that this should be the experience of everyone in the state. This is, like I said, the galloping egalitarianism, or this leads to the galloping egalitarianism that we all now currently live under. Egalitarianism in language, <clears throat> egalitarianism in gender, <clears throat> and egalitarianism even in thought. But family, family is the one group of people who you cannot replace easily, no matter what the postmodern egalitarians might tell you. And the dynamics in family that are replicated every day in the same way they are replicated in this passage from persuasion. Well, those patterns have been repeated for the last 5,000 years of human civilization, and they're not going away, no matter what the egalitarians tell you. So leaders, what can leaders do to help people help? What can leaders do to help people manage the great emotional and psychological pressure and stress that family brings during the holidays? a time when we are supposed to be celebrating gratitude or we're supposed to be engaged with the process of renewal, when we are supposed to be welcoming a new gift into not only our families, but also remembering a new gift, the gift of life being brought into the world. What are we supposed to do as leaders? What is our role here? Now, most workplace leaders, most community leaders, the people who listen to this podcast are going to say, well, I got to worry about my own family and I got my own drama. I can't really worry about anybody else's family. And I think that's incorrect. I've been getting some conviction on this lately, and we're going to cover F.A. Hayek and the road to serfdom a little bit later. But the libertarian impulse leads from an egalitarian impulse or maybe leads into an egalitarian impulse. And the libertarian impulse says what happens in somebody else's house is none of my business. But the fact of the matter is that what happens in your followers' houses is a matter of your business. Those conversations do matter. And the myth of the 20th century, the myth that the industrialists brought us was that we could move from farm to factory and that family would be unimpacted. That was a myth. And we know that it's a myth. We know that while industrialization brought us more material wealth than at any point in time in human history, industrialization also eroded us spiritually. It eroded the ties that bound and it reshaped the boundary lines and in some cases pulled up the boundary lines and pulled up the stakes and threw them in the field and set them on fire between men and women, between parents and children and between the family and society. We can lament this, or we can go into the field 
we can cut down the trees and we can build new stakes and put up new boundaries. And I think people are attempting to do that, but that is hard at a Nietzschean level, right? That's a Nietzschean level of hardness. And remember, Nietzsche knew that human beings, and this is one of the few truths he actually knew and said, he knew that human beings couldn't create a value system out of their own selves by themselves. And Austin shows this, your value system will be given to you, whether you want it to be given to you or not, by first your family and then society. And you will either reject or accept what family gives you, but you will pick something. There's no not choosing. So leaders have to care about what goes on in their followers' houses. They have to care about who their followers are as human beings. And in some cases, leaders may need to help people address the pressure and stress of familial and individual choices clashing together during this and subsequent holiday seasons. Back to the book, back to the annotated persuasion by David M. Shapard. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Um, so with the annotations, this volume of persuasion uh, comes in at around 500 or so pages, including the bibliography. Um, and it is a robust annotation. Um, there are images um, in this annotation that supplement um, the, the sets and the locations where things are happening. Um, there's descriptions of the time in which people lived and images that people made of that time. Um, there's also in here um, definitions of, um, of words, um, because words are used differently now than they were used back in the day, right? <laughs> um, there's also explanations of the social and cultural boundaries, right, that surrounded femininity, but that also freed it in order to engage in as, um, as as a, as a, as a, as a Austin put it, that allowed it to uh, to engage in its own uh, domestic lawmaking. I believe that she uh, she made that reference right um, when um, <clears throat> when uh, when uh, it was who is it that was speaking in that last section? It wasn't uh, it wasn't Anne. It was. Uh, Yes, it was. It was Anne, right? When Anne was speaking, um, and she mentioned um, all of the things that she um, that she had to do um, before she could come and meet Mary, right, um, with Lady Russell, and, and she used the term. I, I love this term. Um, take leave, right? Um, and that is one of those terms that is referenced here in the annotated um, in the annotated Jane Austen, right? Because we don't use that term now. Um, it's also very interesting that while Anne was uh, complaining there, or not Anne, Mary, while Mary was complaining there, um, she was talking about um, how it was so very uncomfortable not having a carriage of one's own. 
I think Virginia Woolf would agree with her. <laughs> All right. So, um, so this is, this is, this is the annotated persuasion, right? I would encourage you to pick it up. It is a robust volume and it does really, uh, immerse you fully, um, into the world of Jane Austen, the world of her time. Um, and it does give extra understanding, um, to what she was grasping at and grasping towards in her work. All right, like I said before, back to the book, back to Persuasion, our last selection today. So again, we're moving forward a couple of chapters. And of course, we are not reading the whole book. And we haven't even gotten uh, here to the main romance, right, that drives Persuasion, right? And we're not going to cover that today. Uh, if you want to go and read that, you can. Um, this is all, it all seems as though we're reading a lot of the setup, because in the setup are lessons for leaders. Back to the book, back to persuasion. The child had a good night and was going on well the next day. It must be a work of time to ascertain that no injury had been done to the spine. But Mrs. De Robinson found nothing to increase alarm and Charles Musgrove began consequently to feel no necessity for a longer confinement. The child was to be kept in bed and amused quietly as possible. But what was there for a father to do? This was quite a female case, and it would be highly absurd in him who could be of no use at home to shut himself up. His father very much wished to meet, wished him to meet Captain Wentworth, and there being no sufficient reason against it, he ought to go, and it ended in his making a bold public declaration, declaration when he came uh, from shooting of his meaning to dress directly and dine at the other house. Nothing can, be, nothing can be going on better than the child, said he, so I told my father, just now that I would come, and he thought me quite right. Your sister being with you, my love, I have no scruple at all. You would not like to leave him yourself, but you see I can be of no use. Anne will send for me if anything is the matter. Husbands and wives generally understand when opposition will be vain. Mary knew, from Charles' manner of speaking, that he was quite determined on going and that it would be of no use to tease him. She said nothing, therefore, till he was out of the room, but as soon as there was only Anne to hear. So, you and I are to be left to shift by ourselves with this poor sick child and not a creature coming near us all evening. I knew how it would be. This is always my luck. If there is anything disagreeable going on, men are always sure to get out of it, and Charles is as bad as any of them. Very unfeeling. I must say, it is very unfeeling of him to be running away from his poor little boy, talks of him being going on so well. How does he know well how, how well he is going on, or that there may be a sudden change half an hour hence? I did not think Charles would have been so unfeeling. So here he is to go away and enjoy himself, and because I am the poor mother, I am not allowed to stir, and yet I am sure I am more unfit than anybody else to be about the child. My being the mother is the very reason why my feelings should not be tired. tried. I am not at all equal to it. You saw how hysterical I was yesterday. But it was only the effect of the suddenness of your alarm, of the shock. You will not be hysterical again. I dare say we shall have nothing to distress us. I perfectly understand Mr. Robinson's directions and have no fears. And indeed, Mary, I cannot wonder at your husband. Nursing does not belong to a man. It is not his province. A sick child is always the mother's property. Her own feelings generally make it so. I hope I am as fond of my child as any mother, but I do not know that I am any more use in this sick room than Charles, for I cannot always be scolding and teasing a poor child when it is ill. And you saw this morning that if I told him to keep quiet, he was sure to begin kicking about. I have not nerves for this sort of thing. But uh, could you be comfortable yourself to be spending the whole evening away from the poor boy? Yes, you see his papa can, and why should not I? Jemima is so careful, and she could send us word every hour how he was. I really think Charles might have 
might as well have told his father we would all come. I am not more alarmed about little Charles now than he is. I was dreadfully alarmed yesterday, but the case is very different today. Well, if you do not think it too late to give notice for yourself, suppose you were to go, as well as your husband, leave little Charles to my care. Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove cannot think it uh, wrong while I remain with him. Are you serious? cried Mary, her eyes brightening. Dear me, that's a very good thought, very good indeed. To be sure, I may just as well go as not, for I am of no use at home, am I? And it only harass me. Hmm. You, who have not a mother's feelings, are a great deal the properest person. You can make little Charles do anything. He always minds you at, at a word. It will be a great deal better than leaving him with only Jemima. Oh, I will certainly go. I am sure I ought, if I can, quite as much as Charles, for they want me excessively to be acquainted with Captain Wentworth, and I know you do not mind being left alone. An excellent thought of yours indeed, Anne. I will go and tell Charles and get ready directly. You can send for us, you know, at a moment's notice, if anything is the matter. But I dare say there will be nothing to alarm you. I should not go, you may be sure, if I did not feel quite at ease about my dear child. The next moment, she was tapping at her husband's dressing room door. As And as Anne followed her upstairs, she was in time for the whole conversation, which began with Mary saying, in a tone of great exultation, I mean to go with you, Charles, for I'm of no more use at home than you are. If I were to shut myself up forever with the child, I should not be able to persuade him to do anything he did not like. Anne will stay. Anne undertakes to stay at home and take care of him. It is Anne's own proposal, and so I shall go with you, which will be a great deal better, for I have not dined at the other house since Tuesday. This is very kind of Anne, was her husband's answer, and I should be very glad to have you go, but it seems rather hard that she should be left in the home by herself to nurse our sick child. Anne was now at hand to take up her own cause, and the sincerity of her manner being soon sufficient to convince him, where conviction was at least very agreeable, he had no farther scruples as to her being left to dine alone, though he still wanted her to join them in the evening when the child might be at rest for the night and kindly urged her to let him come and fetch her. But she was quite unpersuadable. This being the case, she had ere long the pleasure of seeing them set off together in high spirits. They were gone, she hoped, to be happy, however oddly constructed such happiness might seem. As for herself, she was left with as many sensations of comfort as were perhaps ever likely to be hers. She knew herself to be of the first utility to the child, and what was it to her if Frederick Wentworth were only half a mile distance, making himself agreeable to others? talk about that feminism <laughs> just a little bit so that entire passage there lays out the negotiation between men and women um, in a marriage and Jane Austen was able to capture that um, probably because she observed that negotiation happening multiple times over the course of her life she understood 
the nature of the negotiation at multiple levels, right? She understood it at the, at the individual level between men and women, but she also understood and was able to capture the other societal elements and was able to insert those into the narrative of the negotiation. This is a skill set. Negotiation always is. And most people throughout the course of human history are terrible negotiators, even those of us who are trained to do so. But particularly in men, in marriages between men and women, the negotiation becomes fraught with things like vanity and hurt feelings and jealousy, but also desires and needs, uh, unmet and unstated. A true marriage requires vulnerability, both on the part of the man and the woman. And this is what made Jane Austen a literary lion who transcended her sex. She was able to, as all the best male writers did, uh, Shakespeare among them, she was able to insert herself right into a male point of view and to bring that out. And that is part of her unique talent and to bring it out in the sense of a negotiation. Charles there is trying to handle marrying and trying to handle both of them. And of course the child is the bouncing ball between all three of them. Then there are Anne's desires, there are Mary's desires and there are Charles's desires. And then of course, there's just a desire to get out of the house and be seen with your wife in society. No female author, <clears throat> at least not any that we are willing to put into the canon anyway, managed to out Jane Austen, Jane Austen, um, at least not until the progenitors of Virginia Woolf managed to evolve onto the literary scene in the 1980s and the 1990s. I'm thinking of the Margaret Atwoods of the world. And while I'm not a fan of Handmaid's Tale, I, 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 I never read that book, but I have read other Margaret Atwood books uh, and I'm not, I'm not a high fan of her work, got to admit. Um, but you got Margaret Atwood, you got Barbara Kingsolver, um, you know, you have, uh, you have a, a number of other female authors that are um, uh, gigantic, you know, in the space. Um, I'm thinking of the author Donna Tartt, um, you know, the Goldfinch. Um, you know, so you have literary authors that have managed to out Jane Austen, Jane Austen but it took a while, right? And why is that? Is that because of male discrimination and a lack of understanding of what women were grasping towards in the course of literature and in the course of writing? Wasn't a matter of class, right? Um, you know, uh, authors of a certain class just don't get read. Wasn't a matter of, and these days in our time, we reduce everything in America to race. So was it a matter of race, right? Was it only white authors, male authors that were going to get into the canon and all the females and the minority authors were gonna get pushed out? The dominant narrative of our time says, yes, of course, Hassan. And this is a feminist reading of history. <clears throat> the feminist reading of history, the social justice reading of history states that minorities, male and female alike, uh, minorities of class, minorities of race, minorities of ethnicity, 
get pushed to the background and that justice requires bringing them to the forefront. But what of talent? What of reading Jane Austen through an anti-feminist lens? What of reading all of these folks through a lens, not of ideology, but a lens of talent? Will any of these authors survive? Are any of them good enough? And of course, because it's art, what does good actually mean? And who decides? These are the questions of the French deconstructionists, the, the Derrida's and the Foucault's of the world. And uh, French deconstructionism captured the academy and has now captured the public imagination and has captured the public culture. But talent still reigns supreme and authors that transcend race, gender, and ethnicity, here's what they do. They make statements about the human condition. So again, you're going to read Jane Austen for the next hundred years, leaders. You're going to read her in Chinese. You're going to read her in Japanese. You're going to read her in, in, in various African dialects. You're going to read her in Russian. You're going to read her in Portuguese. And uh, if you haven't done that already, you probably will be. She has transcended her own gender. She transcended her own identity. And it is the curse of our time that we try to put the literary curse of our time, that we try to shove these folks back in their box, but it's also the curse of leadership in our time. Genuine leadership transcends the human condition. And any ideological ism, I don't care whether it's feminism or racism, any ideological image, any, any ideological ism tends to capture stories in time and freeze them and makes them only relevant to the moment but never, ever, ever green, never, ever lasting longer than a few moments or than the moment itself. There's something here that Jane Austen is trying to capture in this negotiation. She's trying to capture something about the human condition between men and women and in the human condition between society and culture and the human condition between families. She's trying to capture an understanding of emotional intelligence and negotiation of communication and of fundamentally of leadership. Who is leading who in this negotiation? I don't think it's the man. Who's negotiating with who? I don't think it's just white people. I think we're all negotiating with each other. And to look at Austin through a reductionist lens whether that's a feminist lens or a racial lens or a gender lens, basically destroys the art and it robs it of its higher spirit. Leaders don't rob the art of the higher spirit. Don't throw tomato cans of, don't throw, don't throw tomato sauce on a Picasso. <laughs> Instead, let's try to transcend the human condition with our leadership. And let's not substitute the fake for the real.
So as I close, what can we learn from The Annotated Persuasion by Jane Austen, annotated and edited by David M. Shepard? What can we learn? What can we take from this volume and what can we apply to our real leadership lives? So I've kind of gone high concept a little bit with um, what we talked about here today. And I, I kind of did that a little bit on purpose because Austin and even the Bronte sisters have been so, just like everything else, have been so politicized, right, in our time. Their writing has been so politicized in our time that we are almost forced to push them into a mechanical and a political lens, right? In order to even just do some type of analysis and figure out what we want to pull out of them. But we are a leadership podcast and we try to look at things through a leadership lens as vainglorious as that attempt may be sometimes. And looking at persuasion, looking at the work of Jane Austen. We're going to cover more of Horkin and Sense and Sensibility next year. I'm trying to find an annotated version of that. And eventually, I think in year three, we're going to cover Pride and Prejudice. So we're going to go through all of Austen's work because again, it's work that lasts. But um, what was Austen grasping towards that leaders can take from this romantic piece of literature? Well, I think the first thing is that leaders know that leadership all forms of leadership, whether it's collaborative or tyrannical, begins at home. Parenting matters. And I wish society and culture could take up the could take up the slack. And I wish that parents were better. But fundamentally, leaders, when they show up in your workplace, when they show up in your community, and by they, I mean the followers, the young ones, when they show up with ideas that seem strange to you and thoughts and behaviors that seem weird and actions that don't make sense, Yes, chalk it up to parenting. Wish that the parents had done better and then begin to correct it. Because if you don't, what you're letting happen, well, you're letting the dysfunctions run rampant. So leaders know that leadership and tyranny fundamentally, and and of course, freedom and collaboration, conceptions of that begin at home. The home is the hothouse of everything. I think the second thing that leaders can take from Persuasion by Jane Austen and from all of Jane Austen's work is that um, leaders, leadership needs to transcend the human condition. It needs to go beyond merely just the grubby and the small. Uh, we've deconstructed enough. It's time for us to reconstruct. We've torn down enough. There's been enough revolution we have gotten to the clearing at the end of the path and anything more is removing the <laughs> it's removing the cornerstones from fundamental reality itself which we seem to be rapidly and gleefully pushing out or at least certain sectors of our culture our economy and our political life seem to be gleefully and uh, quite happily pushing those cornerstones out but i think for all the rest of us have to actually live in this world and actually have to make decisions with real people and real consequences, we have to transcend the human condition. And that starts in our workplaces. But for leaders, leaders, it begins at your house. You've got to start transcending the human condition there, which gets to the holidays. So again, it's not a surprise. God is not without a sense of irony that we are doing this podcast episode as we are in the holiday season in North America. Leaders address the emotional pressure of the holidays with intent. 
first with themselves and then with their followers. They recognize that emotional pressure is there. They listen to and they try to manage it and mitigate it for folks. And they do what they can, but they actually care about it. They actually know that family matters. They actually know that it creates stress. They actually know that the tyrannies that are at home and the dysfunctions that are at home and the disjunctions that are at home, the solutions to those can't be scaled up by yet another article on the internet about how to not talk to your family about politics. That's putting politics in the wrong place. That's even putting those kinds of conversations in the wrong place. When the hierarchy is screwed up, leaders fix it. Leaders tell people what goes where and leaders lead on role modeling what goes where. And finally, leaders know the difference between the fake and the real. And this one's really, really important, particularly as society and technology move more and more towards valuing the pretend, towards valuing the images that are fed to us dopaminergically, towards valuing the biological and the sensory and the instant over the spiritual and the ephemeral and the transcendental and the things you have to reach at and struggle at through hard emotions and hard things. <sighs> Leaders are careful and they monitor closely to make sure their followers aren't substituting the fake for the real, particularly when the fake is so attractive and sexy and the real is so unattractive and so unsexy. But if you grab your arms around it, and if you manage it, it will allow you to become a better person, first for your home, then for your community, and then for your workplace. Leaders role model this carefulness, and they walk through it and monitor their lives, both online and in the real, extremely carefully. Jane Austen would have loved Facebook but she would have wondered why it has captured so much attention when the drawing rooms are just so much more interesting. And well, <laughs> that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, 
and subscribe to the Little Red podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.